Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Reimagine and Redesign podcast for Internet Beat Girls. We have another special guest today, one of my favorite people. And I know you all, as you hear me talk, you're always like, you say everyone's your favorite person. But like, I, what I love about this podcast is that I can have deep conversations with people that inspire me, that move me, that I've had the privilege to meet and learn from over the years. And Tanya is one of these individuals. So we have Tanya Anaisi here with us. She is the founder principal, president, leader, head woman in charge of Vetna Design. Uh, she's also one of the co-creators, co-founders, uh, co-innovators, pioneers of the liberatory design process, and honestly, just an amazing woman to know. So let's welcome Tanya. How are you? Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I woke up this morning just like, let's go. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, I, we've known each other now, I guess, since 2017, um, which is a little hard to believe how time has flown. I'm convinced COVID just eight years from all of us, um, but we've known each other for a while and kind of seen each other kind of progress in the movement of the field of equity design, which we help co-create and, and co-pioneer. So, what I love about this conversation is not only we're we going to be able to learn about you, but also learn about this emerging field that's starting to create change globally to push us from a theoretical mindset of equity and only kind of like an individualized version to what is systemic equity, what is equity in practice looks like. So with that, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what systems are you working to reimagine and redesign? Ooh. Yes. Okay. So my name is Tanya. Thanks, Internet, for introducing me. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. I'm based in California right now, but I was raised in Arkansas. And um, I started Beitna in 2016, wanting to work at the intersection of design and liberation or justice work. And the systems I'm trained redesign, can I say all of them? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Everything's broken. I mean... Like personally, for my lived experience, I have a deep passion um, for healthcare. Some of my family works in healthcare and criminal justice, having had a brother in the system. So there are some that definitely like pull the heartstrings, but I feel like everywhere we look, education, like everywhere we look, needs some help. Mm -hmm. For sure, right? And it's, it's a struggle that I even sometimes have, right? My Let me put my advertising hat on, which is the field I was in before I founded Crave Reaction Lab. And in that space, we talk about how when you try to solve for everything, you ultimately end up solving for nothing. And And I try to remind myself of that because there's times when I look at everything and I'm like, it all needs to be fixed. It all needs to be reimagined and redesigned. Yeah. And I think what makes us privileged is that because we have created a framework that can be used in a variety of sectors, like it's sector agnostic, it's community agnostic, and they can mold it and wield it and shape it to what they want and what they need using their living expertise and proximity, I think it gives us the ability to be able to touch more spaces, but recognizing we don't always have to be the ones to actually always do the deep work. And we can still specialize, but also generalize at the same time. Would you agree with that? 100%. I think it's such a joy. Uh, yes, I was just talking to a partner this morning, and I was like, you're the content experts. Like, you live this, you work this, this is your life. We're the process people. Like, we're the hosts. We're mm -hmm. going to host the space and design it intentionally, but, like, we need – your expertise. There's no way to your point I can be an expert in all of in healthcare and criminals and it's just like there's no time and I think that's not the role, at least that I've chosen. I don't know if you feel the same way. It's like I want to be more of the host for the broader mm -hmm. set. For sure, for sure. No, I, I'm definitely more of let me be the host of it. Like even these conversations, I'm having conversations with folks with, from multiple sectors um, mm -hmm. and, you know, have intentionally made sure that People don't pigeonhole these conversations into only design because there's still these assumptions and stereotypes that design is more about object making, right? Um, and it's like that is a form of design, but when we talk about design as process, design as mindset, 
It is in healthcare. It is in education. It's in media. It's in technology. Hell, it's in supply chain management, right? Um, yep. And so I think there's there's an opportunity there to really kind of instill this this approach in all these spaces because to me, every space has the tangibility of design and every space needs the outcomes of equity. And so why not have these worlds together, right? Well said, so, yeah. With that, you know, I, let's back up a bit because, you know, I, we're going to talk a bit about Betna Design. I want to hear a little bit more around what you've been doing there. But I want to also start at a little bit of the beginning. And, you know, I'm a huge proponent of what I call language setting, right? Like that is That is me. So as a, a leader and influencer in the emerging field of equity design, you know, first, what is equity design? And also, you know, what what is your framework of liberatory design and how does it kind of fit into that space itself? Mm, yes, love that. I would say my personal definition of equity design is when you put the equity in front of design, I think design as it was and as it probably is, was sort of like defaulting to the status quo so we're designing you know a lot of the history of human centered design comes from for-profit settings from sales and driving delight and consumer interest um so i feel like in part of the experience of putting equity design right you originally introduced that term and then we started to build the collaborative around it is like no we're being explicit about what kind of design this is and what the outcome is supposed to be like we're designing for equity for liberation not just some design ambiguously. So I feel like that's why I hope one day we'll just say design and everyone will be like, yeah, for liberation, obviously. But to now, today, I feel like it's still, oh, there's design and then there's equity design, right? Like we're being intentional and separating that out. And um, it's like when I was a student in a design program, they were like design and design for social impact were two separate things. And I would argue like actually all design has social impact, whether it's, Furthering equity or not is a different conversation. But anyway, I digress. Um, the way that liberatory design fits in, I think how I remember it, Antoinette, tell me your experience of it. Back in the day is I was, as a designer, having a bit of a study design. I was working at the design school, had this, like, kind of valley moment of just, like, oh, no. Like, I, you know, as a daughter of immigrants, as a woman of color growing up in the South, I felt like I had so many liberation values and lived experience, and yet my design was still creating status quo outcomes and making communities, like, hurting our relationships. So I had a sort of, like, oh, God, is design not what I thought it was? Do I need to abandon it? But in that low moment, I really wanted to be integrating justice values, so I just had starting having conversations with people like David and the folks that ended up being the liberatory design crew, so David, Victor, Susie, Tom, and myself. And at the same time, we were seeing things on the internet. So we saw your article that was in Wired, right? Oh, Fast Company, actually. I remember they chose such a, (laughs) ooh, that title, like, made people go, I'm sorry, what? It was like, want to solve inequality? Forget design thinking. Um, But I think, well, here's funny. It was funny. I think it must have been a heavy, like, article that brought a lot of traffic because they ended up putting it in their Innovation by Design book that they published mm. two years later. So it must have been something. <laughs> I mean, it got my attention. I was right. like, oh, someone else talking about this? So you had been doing this work. Then we met, we heard about the Equity by Design folks in Florida and D.C. And then we met the folks at Reflex Design in Berkeley. So I feel like it was such a fruitful moment for me personally as a designer being like, oh, thank God. Like other people have these questions. Other people have been working on this. So then liberatory design, what came out of that collaboration Half the folks had worked more from an equity background and half of us were designers. And so the equity half was like, listen, we can get people to acknowledge history, talk about the real stuff, but then they kind of get stuck. Like they don't know what to do. What is the verb of equity? And on the flip side, we're like, oh, designers can do all over the place very quickly, very interestingly, but like we don't stop to understand what's the history, what are we reproducing? So that was the intention with liberatory designs. How could we take it down to the studs and then rebuild it, merging the best of liberation pedagogies? Mm-hmm. Um, and the best of design thinking. So that's how it first emerged, and then we premiered it at South by Southwest EDU in 2017. Yeah, that's amazing. And I um, believe we also did some collaborative work. I remember we had did some work with PBS as well. Um, yes! Amazing. Um, what would you say are some of the kind of core tenets of liberatory design that distinguish it from design thinking and human-centered design itself? 
Great question. I think the core distinction is at the core of our process, we have notice and reflect. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we're going to notice things like historical context, um, power asymmetries, the role within the larger system. So there's all these things that in traditional design thinking may or may not come into the project, but often are unspoken. And then reflect is about really checking in. Are we building relationships with community? Where do we need to attend to healing? That's one of our mindsets so that we can move forward because people are hurting or hurt from before. So a lot of it is just building that liberation mindset of noticing and reflecting throughout. And then I think, so we co-created Liberatory Design 2017, and then we all sort of went back to our own organizations to make it our own. So I can speak to what we've done with it at Baitna Design. But I think we built in a lot of tools around, um, for example, we have one around when you're prototyping and trying things called safe to fail. So mm -hmm. this concept is not new of being safe to fail, but we apply that to be like, how can we fail to learn, but without creating emotional, physical financial harm to the communities that are often in the most need. So we built a whole toolkit around that for our teams to say like, okay, let's experiment and learn, but what are potential unintended consequences? What's our emergency mitigation plan? Like who are our trusted allies so that we're learning, but not at the cost of people, which is often a critique of design. So there's a lot of elements design built in throughout, but there's a shift of like, well, we want to practice this piece differently. So what new tools do we need to be able to do that? You know, what I love about that is that, and you spoke to this a little bit when you were saying, you know, when you think about design, thinking human-centered design, it was created very much in a for-profit consulting approach, right? Because I want to name out there that there are for-profits that are B Corps that have kind of like the triple P focus, right? They're thinking about mm -hmm. the planet in addition to profit, in addition to people, right? Like it's not just profit, right? So I yes. think for you and tell me if I'm wrong, it's really distinguishing from the groups that was more focused on only profit and not people and planet um, and really looking at it through product, right? Like I think the other P was product, <laughs> right? Um, but as you named, doing this deep work in community, there's a lot more risk involved. And to think that we're going to be able to like pick up something that was very commercial and product focused yeah. And saying, okay, now let's put this in a community and say it's social impact. And I love you saying, hey, it's all social impact. It's just, are we talking positive and negative or the spectrum in between, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's yes. like, put that in a community that has been historically underinvested, that has literally historical and contemporary and particularly uh, maybe an opportunity of unfortunate legacy of harm, right? Like, it's not the same. It's not as simple as that. So we hear a lot in spaces, you know, the ability to fail is a privilege. And I think it's one that a privilege that all humans should be able to receive and get, but we can't ignore the constraints and the restrictions and the realities that folks are coming from that will prohibit them from being able to fail without failing through the lens of further harm to themselves and their community. Oh, well said. Yes, 100%. Now, I want to hear for because, you know, we have we may have some listeners that are from the design space and are like, yes, speak though. Yes, yes. But we may also have some listeners that are from the equity, diversity and inclusion space. Some of these specialists or even if they're not specialists, they may be individuals or organizations that's trying to, you know, bring in more equitable approaches. You know, like you heard you talked about how nose and reflect is a difference when it comes to the design side and bringing in equity. I'm going to flip the question because I do think as designers, we tend to ask, okay, how's it different from design thinking? How is liberatory design different from more traditional equity, diversity, inclusion frameworks? And I think you alluded to this a bit, but I want to explicitly call it out so folks can kind of sit in it a bit. I hear that. And I, oh. I say a good question after every question you ask because you're just blowing my mind, Antoinette. Um, I would say it becomes, I think a lot of the values will resonate. I don't know if you've seen this in your experience, but for example, a big part of liberatory design, the way we practice it at Beatna Design is doing co-design. So how do we set the conditions and actually invite people in with the lived experience to not just consult them, but actually make all of the decisions together. We are defining the problem. We are brainstorming together. So 
when it comes to more traditional um, equity, diversity, and inclusion spaces, I think that's one of the big differences is partners will tell us, like, this helps us figure out what to do. Like, we wrote the plan. We did the assessment of what's going on in our organization, in our communities. Like, we feel like we understand now and we see people. But what do we do? in a way that feels authentic, that's not top-down, that's like moving beyond the deep work we've done in conversation. So I think that's where liberatory design is such a powerful, and all the equity design toolkits are, to help us see like, what else are we doing? Let's jump into action. So, Mm -hmm. so much of it is rooted in spending time with the people who have the closest proximity to the problem to develop solutions. And it helps you as a team feel equipped that you know what your role is. There's this um, article by Margaret Wheatley written quite a while ago, but it talks about shifting from hero to host. Mm. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do is shift from being the hero who knows everything as the equity consultant or as the designer to actually being like, we're the best host to help an organization, a team, a community take the answers that are within and build them together. Because we may not always agree. We're going to have different opinions. There's going to be constraints. Like, how do we navigate that? And I think that helps us in the EDI space to say, I don't have to have all the answers, but I'm going to host and I'm going to help the team, organization, whoever it is, have a replicable process so that they have the skill set now. It goes beyond me, but it's actually embedded into the organization. I love that hero to host, right? Like, And I think that speaks to, as you were talking about earlier, like the acknowledgement of power dynamics, right? Like there's great framework that talks about like power over, power to, power within, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been really pushing folks lately to think about how do we not look at power shifting as the stopgap? And this is someone that says this as one of our values that created Reaction Lab is power shifting, right? So this is my own development and growth in this space where, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about power shifting, because that's ultimately what we say, we want to shift power, we have to also acknowledge there is a removal of responsibility, accountability when we just shift, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I gave someone access to a space. I gave them, you know, a, a table to sit at, right? Um, but if they fail, again, safety def- safe to fail, right? If they fail, it doesn't affect you. You shifted power. And we've seen a lot of people that haven't had that uh, opportunity and proximity. And what I've been talking lately about is permissionlessness, which, you know, oh, yeah, I might write a book on that. I'm really debating it. Uh, But, you know, they, they don't have that mentality that they can do everything. They don't have many times the resources, the investment to be able to sustain in a space. And then they do fail. And then folks that have been having centuries in those positions or in these organizations, like, well, we tried. We shifted power. But what happens when we actually are sharing power, which Mm. means that we are working hand by hand together to actually make these changes, right? Love that. That's what we need to work towards. And I hear that in even what you're saying with the co-creation um, at Creative Reaction Lab in our framework of equity-centered community design, we talk about inviting diverse co-creators, right? Like mm. it is even at the point of when you're building the team, not research subjects. Right? Yes, yes. The team. And I've had consultancy say, well, I mean, how do you, like, how do you pay them? I'm like the same way you pay yourself, just like you wrote in that budget. <laughs> For you to get paid, write in the budget for them to get paid, right? Because we should not be exploiting people's living knowledge and expertise for our own benefit and labor. Okay. Uh, so, you know what? Let me, this is a, this is about you. I need to stop rambling. I'm so sorry. No, it's great. I'm sorry, y'all. But it's, again, we talk, we, we are very much on the same wavelength a lot. So I want to get to this idea of doing, right? Like in the EDI space, uh, I remember some years ago, I spoke at Stanford D School. They had one of their like uh, school hackathons. I don't remember the name of it right now, but something along the lines. School retool, school retool. Okay. Um, and I remember giving a talk and so a lot of folks came up and was like, we need, you sound like an organizer. You sound like a social worker. You sound like a teacher. You sound like a designer. You sound, And I'm like, yes, we are all of that because we all have the ability to design and we need to understand that designing moves us from theory to action, right? We need people plus intervention to have the impact. 
We can't just have people mindset change, but then don't have interventions to create systems change. And we can't just have systems change and not have people's mindset change, right? We need both for impact. And so in the work that you, thank you. So in the work that you've been doing, you know, how have you been seeing a shift from into a shift from uh, theory to action? Or if you haven't, what are the opportunities you see as opportunities to move from theory to action? I'm just, yes, everything you said. Um, I think what ends up happening for us is we start with the action and it brings all the other stuff up. So a lot of times, let's say I'm thinking, for example, um, we did something, we, we did a six month intensive with a nonprofit called the Imagine Institute. They do early childhood learning support in um, Washington state. And what is focused on is we are training them in how to do the liberatory design process with intensive coaching over the course of six months. So they, we break them up into smaller teams of five to six people. They choose a specific topic, like we're focused on X, Y, Z. And then we coach them through completing the full project. And so they've made tangible outcomes. It's like, we don't understand whether, why this community is not getting support. Let's interview them. Let's build solutions with them. Let's run some prototypes and try it. Like, okay. Well, we have a totally different outcome that we're going to build now. So in that level, they get that first tangible piece of like, I see now. I'm, I feel more rooted and more connected to what's going to be equitable. And then what happens is by doing that work, it brings up all the mindset and system stuff. So it's like, wait, actually, this larger issue has to do with the policy of how we pay early childhood care workers in Washington. We can't actually directly change the policy. But what does that mean if we want? this system change to happen? Do we need to lobby? Do we need to support other partners that already do that? So it brings up all these system pieces where you start to hit the constraints of the system. And it brings up the mindset stuff. Because they're like, wow, we thought we were doing, this is a different part, but they started to connect deeply with the community. And they're like, man, we thought we listened to community voices. But actually, we see this in the pre and post assessment results. After the intervention, and they spent more time with community, they rate it lower. We yeah. feel like, what is your organization at reaching out to communities? They're like, oh, we didn't know. <laughs> like, People always rate like, themselves higher. And then afterwards, they're like, well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is such a win from my perspective. It's like now we've reset. We've deep, more deeply connected. So I think it ends up being both. But a lot of times in our projects, because I don't know if you felt this way, partners are like, it's urgent. We got to move stuff now. It's this particular project. We got to help our communities. And I'm like, yes, all this other stuff is in the way. But we start and then all that stuff inevitably comes up. And then the team is really ready to work on it because it came from them. I didn't tell them as a consultant, hey, they feel it and they see it through their design work. And then they're really fired up about how to address them. I love that. I love that. So, I mean, you you talk about being a person around the process, right? Like, they're the content specialist. You're the process specialist, right? But, again, let's not forget moving from hero to host, right? Um, and, you know, as a framework co-creator, as, you know, equity design facilitator, what steps do you see yourself taking to influence equitable decision-making and ensure that underrepresented communities are represented and heard? You talked a bit about co-creation and you know, I think a lot of people hear that word, but don't understand the importance of the initial steps of recruitment. And, you know, you know, I'm getting a bit, a bit to your like rituals and like all of that to actually allow for folks to be invited and included and belong. So as the facilitator, as the framework creator, you know, what are some of the steps you take to actually bring those voices in more intentionally and respectfully? Mm. I think so much of um, – I'm starting to write a book right now about co-design. Mm. It's very unfinished, but I've started. And <laughs> well, as I started to write the content, so much of what kept coming up, to your point, was actually facilitation. Like being an amazing host is a sort of different set of skills than what I was trained as as a designer. I was trained as a design solver and doer. To be a design host and to allow people to be invited, to be able to contribute authentically, sort of a different skill set. You have to be an amazing facilitator. And I think so much of what we think about at Bait Now when we're facilitating is around, for example, when we do these co-design projects, we take out the design lingo. 
we don't really need to, we don't need to call it liberatory design. We don't need to have the steps. We don't need like that's not actually found. It's actually not helpful. It's not inviting because people then get fixated on did I do it right or like mm-hmm. I didn't know what this was until I got here. I clearly must not know enough to contribute. Everybody else seems to know what this is. So it creates all these feelings. Again, it just amplifies that power asymmetry. So there's small things like that where instead of using the jargon and the framework and the norms, we're going to build all the activities and the space to be focused on ways that they can contribute based on their lived experience. And one step at a time, I would say. So we walk in, we're like, hey, this is our goal. We're trying to redesign XYZ. I'll try to use a tangible example. Let's say we're trying to reimagine, we did a project in Columbus with a partner, Heather Severus, who's amazing at co-design. And we're looking at supporting youth experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. And so step one, we brought in youth who were experiencing homelessness or had recently exited to co-design together. And the first step was like, hey, we'd love to get to know you. Let's build some relationship, trying to understand like what brought you here, what our hopes are. And then once we built a little relationship, we said, we want to connect with people in your community. What should we even ask them? What do we need to know? Mm. And so we're just doing one step at a time. It's like, we want to learn more. We want to talk to people. Then they dive in and they have ideas and questions. They wrote the interview guide like that. And it was not things I would have come up with, which is great. That's the whole point. They know way better than we do. And then next step, we interview those people. We're like, great. What did we learn from those interviews? So it ends up becoming just the natural next step opposed to like, here's our agenda for the day and here's the exact five design steps. So I think so much of it has become, how do we make the space less workplacey and more human? Like the word beitna in Arabic means our home. Mm. So I'm trying to make it feel like we're in the living room with our notebooks, community organizing style. Like we're, um, we got tea, we got food coming in, but like we're here to solve the problem, but we're going to do it in a way that feels very human. So I don't know if I spoke enough to like specific facilitation moves, but in, that's always our goal is like, how do we help people walk in and contribute and not feel like they had to know, or did they say it right? Or did they make the post-it look nice? You know what I mean? <laughs> Do we even need posters as someone that uses posters? I'm not gonna lie. I do judge, but I'm I'm always like we are so quick to pull out a poster and a sharpie, and it's like that's not the actual point. That is not the process. That is not you know what we want people to get out of this. You know, having a like what you just said wasn't an empathy interview, right? Like that was an example of pure sharing of power, centering that proximity, that living expertise. Like you said, they came up with that interview packet and questionnaire way quicker than you ever would have and probably deeper than you ever ever would have reached right because they have that insight they know i'm so moved i'm sorry what were you saying no i was just saying they know they know i was really moved by some of the questions i reread them recently they were like hey are you okay today like have you had a meal today how Mm. are you feeling and it was just like basic humanity Mm-hmm. And I was like, I would come in hot with my design questions about like, tell me how you chose where to live. Where do you feel safe? And they were like, hold on. Like, mm-hmm. have our brother or sister eaten today? Are they safe? Like, there was just so much other stuff going on that, yeah, just humbling and also a reminder of like, this is why I'm the host and not the solver, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's let's get to the human element with you, right? Like, after this, we're going to get, because I want to learn a little bit also around, like you, like you said, healthcare, justice reform. Like, these are things important to you. I know they're also very heavy topics. So before we go heavy, let's go joyful. So a few of our colleagues, and you know this, that's also part of the equity design uh, movement, uh, equity X design, equity by design, depends on who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's equity by design is what they say. Um, they created uh, this term and this movement of what they call equity pauses. Uh, and I have been remixing it and having kind of these breaks in our conversation to do what I call a liberation pause. And so the idea of this is that I will give you different categories and I want you to name what comes up for you in that category when you think what liberates Tanya. Right. Like what brings me joy? Right. So the first category, and I did, I think I always pick this one first, but it's because I love music. Right? So if you had to pick a song that equals and defines liberation for you, what would it be? There's a song called I Am by Beautiful Chorus and India Ari that my, one of my best friends shared with me. And the whole song is just like, Oh, it makes me cry. 
Mm. It's like, I am whole. I am Mother Earth. I am the trees. And every time I hear it, I'm just like, yes. It's very calming. That's my liberation jam. I love that. What about, are you a podcast listener as you're on a podcast? Do you listen to podcasts? (laughs) I do, but I would say they're liberating. I would say they're more like guilty pleasure podcasts. But that's okay, because that's a form of liberation as well. Like, I think a lot of times we think about we're only going to talk about astrology, right? (laughs) We talk about liberation. So, podcasts. What podcast liberates you, brings you joy? Okay, so when I'm, like, really in a place of, like, spiritual openness, it's on being. Hmm. They're just, like, poets, uh, thought leaders, spiritual leaders. But my, like, my pleasure ones, which are just for fun, there's one called Scamfluencers, which is about (laughs) scam artists, (laughs) which is not, oh, that's why I say a guilty pleasure. But the two hosts are these women of color, and they're commentary. I'm in it for the commentary. They're Hmm. just so goofy and having so much fun with each other so that's my like I need a little pick me up I need to like have a breath of fresh air that's my oh no judgment here I am a real housewives of Atlanta real housewives of Potomac girl like come on like (laughs) we need a break sometimes (laughs) I actually tell people I'm like you know I don't watch real movies right and they're like what do you mean I'm like I don't want character development I don't like don't give it to me. I don't need it. I have deep work all day, every day. Give me something that's action oriented, straight to the point. I don't need a fluff. You can have the drama, right? I have every day (laughs) dealing with these systems. So I think that is a form of liberation in itself, right? Um, What about color? Ooh, For me, it's always been like a deep blue. Oh, I see a bit like for folks that will maybe check us out the LinkedIn, we are going to release kind of the the raw version of these conversations where you hear everything. But there's literally a beautiful rug that has this deep blue on it. And also I see it in the pillows as well and the artwork on the wall. Like literally (laughs) it is following you in this space. I love it. I love it. Um, Season. Oh, for me, it's summer. I'm a like, ooh, I mean, raised in Arkansas, I'm like, no shoes, booty shorts, outside. Like, I need to be, like, windows open, it's hot. That is when I feel the most just myself and the most, you know, I go to Lebanon to see my family. We're on the beach. Like, summer gives me freedom. I love that. I love that. I'm going to ask a couple more. So, you said Lebanon. Is it? Would you say that's your geographic location? If you had to pick a place for liberation, would it be Lebanon? Yes, yeah. ever since I was little. Because growing up in Arkansas, I was like the weird girl, and why does your mom have an accent, and like, oh, my God, all this weird stuff. And then we would go to Lebanon, and my family was just like, obviously, this is how we are. Yeah. <laughs> I having a time with your family at a dinner, one of the best experiences I've ever had at a dinner. So fun. <laughs> there might have been some dancing on the table, yeah. maybe. <laughs> Great. So for anyone listening, put Lebanon potential on your list because great time, great food. <laughs> like, like amazing, amazing. Oh, so um, a couple more. Hobby. Mm, for me, it's dance. Okay. Yes, dance always like the somatic, the movement. And I studied, I did several years of deep study of like Lebanese folkloric dance which I'm learning as I get older, has a lot of Bedouin and indigenous, like it was used, okay, not to go on too big of a tangent, but the way it used to be used in the history is women were considered like seers who could communicate with spirits. So they would use this form of dance to enter basically a trance. And this is very non-binary because it was described in a history book, but the people they described as men would stay on the outside and basically like protect them so that they can be in a trance state and not worry. And I was like, oh, that's why it feels so like spiritual and the music is a lot of like heavy drums. And so for me, it's always the Lebanese dance is like the most freeing. I love it. I love it. How about a person you can pick historic or contemporary? I would call them redesigners for justice, but one individual or individuals come up for you when you think of liberation. I think recently I've been reading a lot of Ruby Sales and Grace Lee Boggs. 
because mm. so much of their liberation work and talk is rooted in like love, joy, justice, like a lot of the things that Adrienne Marie Brown writes about. So I've been feeling a lot of inspiration from them recently. Okay. And then this last one is you pick what what's missing. You know, what is something that is liberatory for you? Oh, my goodness. I would say babies laughing. When babies just, like, keel over giggling, I just feel like life is good. We're all going to be free. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> You're right. Like, how many times when you hear a baby laugh, there's some folks that are like, oh, like, my, well, I'm going to speak to individuals that have ovaries. Like, usually they say, oh, my ovaries, or if they don't have ovaries, they're like, oh, I want one. And then I'm using the person that's like, oh, they're so precious. I don't plan on ever having another one. But you're so precious. And it brings me so much joy. You're right. There's something about just, I don't know, like non-conformed, like just true, authentic baby laughter there's nothing behind it it's just utter joy Mm, yes that's so good that's so good okay (laughs) thank you for taking that pause with me all right so let's let's jump back in i want to hear a bit around your company and also like what would you say was your journey to create it like you talked about being a designer and you talked about being a design being like it's centered in our home right why why this direction Like you could like you're a teacher, you know, you, you facilitate, you do a lot of different things, but this is your primary. So why, why this, what inspired you to create an equity design firm? You know, when I originally left my role at the D school, I knew I wanted to be doing design and justice work, but I didn't know yet what that was and if I could find a job. So honestly, for a while I was applying to jobs. And what I was finding, to your earlier point, was a really values-aligned equity job with no design in it, Mm. or a, like, really flashy, interesting design job, but equity on the back burner. And so I felt very torn, like, ah, I like 50% of this job. So in the meantime, I was freelancing just to try to, you know, take care of my financial needs. And then I just kept freelancing and kept freelancing. And I reached a point where, you know, honestly, inspired by you, inspired by Dr. Christine Ortiz and Caroline Hill and Michelle, who had built a business out of it. Well, you're a nonprofit, but like, you know, a business, an organization. Well, stay tuned, people. Stay. Okay. Yeah, and we're technically a for-profit, the way Bateman is set up. Um, so I think simultaneously I was like, I really am craving this being my full-time job. And then looking around saying, well, these women of color are doing it very successfully. So, like, I feel confidence that I can do this. I also have an aunt I'm super close with who's run her own business for a long time. And she was just like, what do you need? You want to talk about the paperwork? Like, tell me what you're worried about. So I felt very, like, raised in a sense by these women of color in my life, um, including you. And <laughs> then I felt a lot of confidence to take the plunge. And then the first year was what I call Robin Hooding. It was like 50% equity clients who were kind of like, what's this? What are you talking about? And I was like, please, just trust me. And then I would still do, like, I did a workshop for Amal, you know just consumer facing mall but then that would pay really well and then I could experiment more with liberatory design so it took us a while maybe a year and a half before we were 100% equity projects and then from there it just grew oh believe me I remember it took me three years before I was received any payment from creative reaction lab any payment so (laughs) the things they don't tell you about entrepreneurship I know it sounds all glossy but it is a lot of work and you do not get to shut off when everyone else clocks out, that doesn't even exist for you. It's a lot of intentionality of creating space of separation for yourself, right? Um, and which I think is what makes it different from being a founder than just being like a CEO and president. Like I've had, like I literally did an interview yesterday where someone said, so I see your title. It could be founder or president or CEO. I was like, no, it's all three. <laughs> so there's no or. Like I need you to put respect on the three all right because all different jobs all three different jobs (laughs) so like let's let's jump into your jobs a bit right so you have made in a design amazing clients you spoke a little bit about some of the work with them but you also are a faculty member for the national equity project you're sometimes a lecturer at stanford d school like how 
how do you pro promote equity in these educational settings? And, you know, what are some insights that you can bring to folks that are working in education or maybe they're working full time in their other job, but they're maybe considering doing some educational work in the community or at established institutions where how they can bring equity into those spaces? Mm. Yes. So I would say Betna, to your point, is the majority of my time. But this year I came back to teach at the Stanford D School. It had been years, but I was excited to come back. And I co-taught the course with Julie Tinker who's an amazing human being, works at Hope Lab, and she's really experienced at doing co-design with communities very traditionally under-recognized, marginalized. So she'll do co-design, for example, with youth of color that are working through nicotine addiction or looking at maternal health in Black communities and how to support women when they're caregiving. And there's she's just some really, really rad co-design work. Anyway. Julie rocks. So we taught this class together called Methods in Co-Design. And honestly, it was an experiment to say, like, is anybody going to sign up? Like, are people interested in co-design? We got an amazing group of folks who signed up. Um, and I think what it's very soul-filling to be with students. My experience, I don't know about you, Internet, but when I would go to conferences back in the day and try to talk about liberatory design, the equity design movement, I got a lot of skepticism from the design field. But design students were always like, yeah. Like, obviously, why else would we do design? It's for equity. And I was exactly. like, <laughs> different generation. <laughs> different generation. Bless them. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice um, being back and teaching there. Because I think a lot of the students were like, well, how are we designing? Yes, for marginalized peoples, but also for plants. Like, what does it mean to design with Mother Earth? And I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. So there was so much learning for me. And the students were so far ahead, they wanted to push all the boundaries in the best way. So I think it was really soul-filling for me. But that's definitely a, like, um, doing it for love, passion, excitement, intellectual refreshment. It doesn't, like, drive business stuff. (laughs) It's separate from the business, but I'm I'm grateful I'm in the position that I can afford to do that because it is really meaningful to be able to teach. I love that. I I love that so much. And, you know, we work with young leaders as well, as you know, um, and – they take you and push you in places that you hadn't thought of, which is wonderful. Like, how do we create more intergenerational spaces um, mm-hmm. of co-creation? Because the reality is that we were all young once and we're all hopefully, if we're willing and, and able to get older. Right. And so the life cycle of humanity, you know, is something to consider of bringing all those perspectives. And the reality is that it changes every generation. Hell, I would argue it changes every week. <laughs> it's like when I talk to people about equity, I'm like, you know, equity is like uh, ultimately is personalization and customization, giving people what they need when they need it, which mm-hmm. means that what I needed three months ago may be completely different than what I need today. And that means it's ongoing. It is not a stopgap. It is not a checkbox. It is not, oh, I just got some Sharpies. I'm not hating on Sharpie, right? Like, I promise you I'm not hating on Sharpie. Um, But because we have plenty of them. I'm just saying sometimes we only focus on the tool and not think about, like, the effects across the spectrum of life. And what I love about what you said with your students is that for them, they even think about the spectrum of life for plants, animals, other organic beings and creatures, right? Just as important to ourselves. I love that. And it speaks so much to your earlier question, Antoinette, of like how are these equity design frameworks helpful and different? It's like when things are constantly changing, the only thing we can guarantee is a process to help us figure out what we need. Like we can't have the answers I mean, if we looked at, like, a DI document, even one that I wrote six years ago, I'd be like, ha. <laughs> but, you know, that's a good sign because the field changes so fast. So it's, instead of having the answers, I think what I love about these frameworks is we have the tools, the resources, the mindsets. So we will figure it out because it does change. Mm-hmm. So I want to speak a bit for because I'm hopeful that we have folks across the globe listening to this podcast. Um, and, you know, our framework, we have found, we recently did a study that we, like, Equity Center Community Design apparently has reached over 600 cities and over 50 countries. And it's like, what? Right? Like, huh? Right? <laughs> like, tell us more, right? But 
I will say, and I don't know if you've run into this, when we've had clients, you know, some, particularly is usually the organizers, but when we have clients, sometimes they're like, well, you know, equity isn't a term that we use in other countries, or it's different, or we don't have that issue, and then that's when I usually have to ask the question, okay, are you talking about racial equity? Are you talking about gender equity? Are we talking about equity as it relates to caste or class, or right? Like, the list can go on, right? So as someone that's worked with diverse clients in a variety of countries, actually, like, what challenges do you commonly encounter when helping organizations kind of center equity focused strategies um and how do you address some of these challenges i really that resonates that's come up for sure of like we don't call it that or like our history is different so can we ground it in our history and part of what we tried to do has been like yeah can you help us with that part like (laughs) what what does it need to be instead um because i think i mean there's the thought leadership of the author of cast i have it right here on my bookshelf Remind me of her name. Isabel Wilkerson uh, wrote that book, Cast, talking about the connections between the cast of India and in the U.S. And, and even in Nazi Germany. So I feel like at the core, oppression, unfortunately, is only comes in a couple of flavors. But then it gets, like, remixed and changed based on the history. Of course, it's very different in every place. So I think the framework still applies. That's why it's probably resonating 50 countries across the world. People are like, yeah, we got that stuff going on. But then the customization around the language definitely comes up. And I think something that's also been hard is thinking about the power dynamics. Like I know when I've gone back to do work in Lebanon or in Jordan, we speak the same dialect. Something that I had to face talking about hero to host is anything I said, they were like, yes, professor, absolutely. Yes. You know better than us. And I was like, (laughs) what? No, 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 no. Like I'm trying to, I'm giving you an invitation, an offering, a framework. Like you're literally trying to dismantle power dynamics and shift and share and in the space, even in the communication structure, it's upheld. 100%. I gave a presentation in Jordan and they introduced me in Arabic as Professor Tanya and I see, but I don't have a PhD. And I told them and they were like, shh, it's fine. And then they wanted to put the logos everywhere huge. I blew up a photo of my face that was literally 20 feet tall. And for a second, I was like, thanks. And then I was like, wait, this is a good vibe. <laughs> like, power eight. I'm like, come have an equal conversation while you stare at the 20-foot poster of me. So it's been tough also, the colonial vibes. Like, even though I speak the dialect, I physically look like a lot of the people there. There was still this, like, American, you know, she went to Stanford, she must know. So I think that's been one of the bigger barriers doing international work is, like, actually, how can I equip the people on the ground to be in the front? So it's not that helpful yeah. for me to be in the front. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I believe it was either Caroline from 228 Accelerator or it was Michelle from Equity Lab. But I remember when we came together, I believe it was in 2018, um, 2017, 2018 as a group, we were really intentionally thinking about language. How do we define equity design? How do we define the equity design facilitator? You know, the equity designer. This is before we had coined redesigns for justice, right? Like we were there, but I remember us defining oppression where, and they gave us that definition, which was mistreatment at scale. Now, and it's funny because I bring that definition still in spaces I work in and one people go, Ooh, oh, that's good. Right. <laughs> To hear that, and you know, again, giving them the credit for developing that. But to your point, when you look at it at oppression as literally mistreatment at scale, there are no like lines, there's no boundaries, there's no, oh, this is Mexico or this is Amsterdam or this is Europe. Like it shows up differently, but mistreatment at its core, unfortunately, I wish, I, I wish and I hope. And I, I pray we play a role in getting us there. We get to a society where this this isn't commonplace. But unfortunately, mistreatment is across country lines. It's across city lines. It's across rural lines. It's across different identities that we hold because we do unfortunately have this divide and conquer embedded in societal structure. We have the half and half not embedded in societal structure. And so to your point, when you're in certain spaces, 
whether you use the term equity for some people they do use equality but they actually mean the definition of equity which is when mm-hmm. there's equal outcome because equality is equal access equity is equal outcomes i've noticed some folks when they're talking about equality especially in a global context they're talking about equity which is equal outcomes right and so no matter where you are it still permeates and how and we have these frameworks and I want to name we're not the only folk like there's design justice frameworks there's trauma-informed design approaches there's I've been seeing um, a lot around peace design right like folks are doing this work to understand that this mistreatment ripples everywhere and instead of passively navigating it how do we actively design and redesign and reimagine hello podcast title (laughs) a more equitable and liberatory world right i love that and i do feel like we've met some people i know there's a group in new zealand that's working with maori leadership to shift liberatory design to merge with maori values i know we've met a group in mexico city called accionario that has taken elements of liberatory design and community organizing to do really important projects about missing peoples about indigenous restoration of land so there's also these folks that totally without us are just taking it being like cool i'm gonna make this work for me (laughs) and that's the dream right is that like it also doesn't have to come from us correct correct so I, you know, we're getting close to the end and, and I want to get to like the imagination part, right? Like we talked about like to be in the reality at the core, you redesigned the process, right? Like that is part of what you did. And I want to look at how do we also reimagine towards the lens of equity. So first, let's start with transparency and vulnerability. Let's, let's get there a bit. Not that you haven't been vulnerable because you have, but I want you to share what's your biggest I don't know right now oh man my biggest I don't know oh I feel like there's a lot of them let's see my biggest I don't know is like the thing that keeps me up at night is will our world ever find enough healing Mm -hmm. that we get to a place like is it possible to heal at this scale because we're battling today's battles and full of the trauma from yesterday's battles. And so that's something that keeps me up at night is like, can we get the healing we need? And then in my work, I think something that is always a question for me is um, I I do believe right now that we can create change from within the system. You know, we can have those, um, we can get up to good trouble, as John Lewis would say. We can be in the angelic troublemakers, and I do think we can create change, but sometimes we hit walls with power holders closing doors, and I do sort of feel like, like we do work with some tech partners, and I'm really proud of the results we've seen. Yeah. But some sometimes I also don't know. Like, is it? Yeah. Is it work? so rooted, so embedded? Um, it's interesting because I was going to ask you earlier, um, but I think you you answered the question pretty well, so I just didn't jump in. But I'm like, teaching at a school like Stanford D School, you know, like let's talk about the history of education and you know the fact like we want to ignore that a lot of these institutions were built off the backs and the reality of exploitation of black and brown bodies and also white supremacy culture and tenets, right? And we're trying to still do this work within. Um and and there are folks in these organizations that are really doing great challenging their internal agitator work, right? But then we also have folks within that are trying to maintain the status quo. Um, and it makes me think of a power spectrum in the sense of like, which times are we shifting in different ways? And what, what does even the middle look like, right? You talk about healing, which I think is shifting like in a, because healing, I want to name, it's not temporary. It is not a one-step thing. Some people think, oh, if you throw a candle out, apparently that's healing. It's like, like if someone has a candle near her right now, I'm going to tell you right now, yes, it's a moment to bring me well, great feelings, but it ain't the only thing that's going to contribute to my healing. <laughs> There's a lot of things I'm unpacking in my life. Yes. So it's deep. It is it is ongoing is when you think about the healing from what happened to your ancestors to the healing needed for your descendants, right? 
but it doesn't mean we can't do the work. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do the work. And there isn't a roadmap to do that work. And so in a way, we have to reimagine, redesign even the roadmap to try to get to something that has never been attained before. And you have institutions that have the history that the first step is that they haven't even grappled with that, but then want to say they're doing the work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's ask um I I have two more questions for you just because I love closing on these questions. Um I start to hear things I'm like so good like I never thought of it, right? So imagine there were no barriers, no limitations. You could wave a magic wand. What is one way you would transform your sector? And or it could be the two that are important to you, like healthcare or the justice system, to be more inclusive and equitable. Magic wand. One way you would magic wand. Okay, I have thought about this before. I must confess, in my like late night thoughts, um, I dream of a world where, when someone does something that traditionally lands them in the criminal justice system. Our first approach is to offer healing and not to punish. Mm -hmm. So I dream of a world where prisons and jails do not exist. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, there are real instances where people are creating harm, where they're a danger to themselves or others. Like, again, coming from a place of trauma. So it's not saying, like, look, hello, nothing's happening. But at the same time, like, the approach is care, community support, healing, and that people in that place get enveloped in instead of isolated out. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking, like, No punishment, no jails, no prisons. Instead, I don't know what it looks like, but it's probably still a community center, but it's focused on healing, regeneration, like a true, true belief that these people are whole and that they can be part of the community again. And But it just, yeah, I don't know. In my heart, it feels so much bigger than what I can say in my words. But even if we just remove the punishment piece, I just feel like how are we in this world still thinking that works? That we take people who have been through unbelievable trauma and inflict trauma, and they'd be like, let's put on some extra hard trauma on top of that, and then they'll be fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, How we know a lot of times it's inspired by profit, right? Like, let's call, like, this. these are not, and right now I will name, we are talking United States, even though there are countries that also have, um, you know, deep justice system like issues and honestly conflict and corruption <laughs> and the same with the United States is just what a name of things. Um, and for a very long time, we have not been a country that's been around, re- you know, reconciliation, restorative justice. It is has very much been rooted in profit. Right. Oh, right. And just recreating slavery when they couldn't have it that way, they made it a new way. It's just exactly. like, damn. Mhm, mhm. That's and again, I want to name that is by design. <laughs> okay, that is by design. So that's a heavy one. Now mm-hmm. let's go to the positive, the flip side, right? Okay. We're in the year twenty-one, twenty-three. So hundred years from now, okay. What's different about the world? How has it been reimagined, redesigned to bring you, your descendants, joy, liberation? Does it smell different? Does it feel different? Does it taste different? What's different about the world in 2123? Okay. I'm just seeing the vision I'm having in my head is a school where mm-hmm. children, like intergenerational, there's kids, there's youth, there's adults, there's Tata, as we call them, are the grandmas in Arabic. They're just like in a garden. And they're talking about conflict and how to repair and how to grow. And they're just like in the earth mm-hmm. talking about it. And um, I see that people are physically looking so different and wonderful and fabulous. And there isn't like the big kids, the female kids, the gendered, like it's just like this fluid human beings. And they're so focused on tackling the challenges of that day, but they have the tools to do it together. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing your world and what it would look like in 2123. Because everyone's view is different and we don't give ourselves space enough to actually imagine the possibility. 
of what the world could look like. We're so deep in the work. We have the goal, but what does it look like to imagine it, right? And have that be a form of joy and liberation and honestly something to sustain us. So with that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and it's always a pleasure speaking to you and excited. I was able to get you on the Reimagine Redesigning podcast and just excited to see more of what you do and honestly how folks continue to use your framework, the liberatory design, the framework in the field of equity design to get us to this space of action and ultimately have equal outcomes for everyone across the globe. So with that, thank you. Oh, so much. Thank you, Internet. Thank you for having me here and for everything you've done for this field. Your legacy is deep. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.